If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Just sitting here staring at my computer screen at a story out of Chicago today that just has me shaking my head and wondering what world exactly we live in. A former school official in a Chicago suburb has been accused in a bizarre scheme in which she embezzled over one and a half million dollars worth of chicken wings in the course of two years. How many chicken wings do you have to steal to get up to one and a half million dollars worth of chicken wings? The story is that she was the food buyer for a school district and she would order extraordinary amounts of chicken wings that never showed up at the school, which, you know, they describe it as an absurd quantity of chicken wings, I would say. I, I mean, I'd love to do the math. What, what, what does each one cost? Not, not at a store, not at a restaurant to, to buy. Ten cents, five cents? Well, how many chicken wings? Where do you hide a million and a half dollars worth of chicken wings (laughs) in the span of two years? The best part of this story, well, that's, that's the best part of the story. But the second best part of the story, which is actually the most infuriating part of the story, because I, you know, generally we do not applaud or laugh at crime, but this one's ridiculous. Um, The school district says we don't even serve chicken wings which makes this even more ludicrous. And why does the school district not serve chicken wings for high school kids? Oh, because they have bones in them. I mean, okay, so we've gone from ludicrous to even more ludicrous. We can't trust high school students to be able to eat something with a bone in it because, you know, who knows what could happen if someone was given a bone to have to work around in their chicken wing. I mean, I get it. I know some parent would sue and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But still, like the bubble wrap generation, the helicopter generation, oh boy, we cannot allow our high school students to eat a chicken wing. It's amazing she didn't get into the boneless wing world. Anyway, welcome to the show. As I say, Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Lots to get to today. From that to some other interesting offbeat things. We're going to start off in just a couple of minutes talking about Sasquatch, a new study. Now, I mean, people do real studies on these things. A new study has been done that explains what people are seeing when they think they see a Sasquatch. We're going to tell you what they're seeing. And no, it's not like drug-induced haze. Apparently, they there is something that now the scientists are saying, no, no, they're seeing something. We're going to tell you what it is. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne, Man, this is a theme here. Uh, biting Instead of biting chicken wings, he's biting heads off bats. Uh, but he's not biting anything right now. He His health is not good, and he is on pause now until further notice. You would think, we're going to talk about this with, um, with Alan Cross in a couple of minutes. You would think that we're going to be hearing a lot more about this, because how many legendary rockers now are at the point when we're going to be expecting to hear about health problems? They're getting up there. They're in their 80s, in their late 70s. There's the, the Aussies, the next one. Uh, reports, but with a potential denial that John Herdman, Canada's men's soccer team coach, the guy who took Canada to the World Cup, 
maybe leaving to coach New Zealand. Really? Right before, well, not right before, but a few years before we host the World Cup. Really? We'll talk about that. Uh, We're going to get into Tom Brady, who is retiring again. We're going to get into encampments and a court decision in Waterloo that has granted legal permission, it seems, for people to set up encampments on public property. They have that right, according to this court. Hmm. We will get into that one. Um, Pension plans, defined benefit pension plans, suffered their largest losses since the 2008 financial crisis in 2022. What could that mean for you? We will get into that one. Uh, The Hamilton Bulldogs, as you've probably heard, are leaving for Brantford for at least three years. But there are people who think that this is going to stick and that we may not see that. Hamilton Bulldogs back here again. They may become permanently the Brantford Bulldogs. The owner of the team, Michael Anlauer, who made this announcement yesterday, he will be joining us just after 5 o'clock today. Uh, We're going to be having it. Well, the cold snap has been testing our shelter system once again. We'll be talking about that one and uh, and many, 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 many more things to come up over the next three hours here on Hamilton today. Um, While we're contemplating all else, Please give a thought to the Twitter poll today. Should Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner run for the Ontario Liberal leadership? You know that they have been, or some people, some Ontario Liberals have been going after him to say, hey, come and take over. We've got a leadership race here and we could use you. He's not in the party, but they think he would do better, I guess, than anybody else in the party. Not exactly a ringing endorsement of the candidates, is it? Anyway, uh, should Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner run for the Ontario Liberal leadership? Go on Twitter, look for 900CHML. You can take our Twitter poll. It's a simple yes or no question. What do you think? Uh, Yesterday's Twitter poll, by the way, really interesting. BC, British Columbia, is now allowing people to carry up to 2.5 grams of opioids and other illicit drugs for personal use to help prevent overdose deaths. Should Ontario do the same? What do you think the numbers were? Just before I give them to you, what do you think? How do you think it broke? Yes or no? 72% of you say, no way, do not, we do not want things opened up to all kinds of drugs. 72% of you, I'm a little bit surprised, but there you go. I mean, half of me is surprised, half of me kind of, well, that's where I would fall, but interesting. There is a new study that is being published that Well, that talks about what people are seeing when they claim to see Bigfoot or see a Sasquatch. And to my surprise, I thought what they were seeing was the six pack of beer they just consumed or maybe the joint they smoked and they're not seeing clearly. But apparently that's not necessarily the case. People who are seeing these things are probably really seeing something. This is not a figment of their imagination. Flo Foxen is a scientist and data analyst who works in astronomy, cryptology, public health, and paleontology. Joins us from England to talk about this. Flo, thank you so much for the time. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you coming on here because this is one of those stories that, uh, first of all, some people would say, wow, they're doing a real study on this. Uh, Besides that, a lot of people like me, I think, oftentimes assume that if someone says they saw a Sasquatch, they were probably just drunk or something else, and they didn't see anything, you're suggesting that's probably not the case. They probably really did see something, just maybe not what they thought. Yeah, I think we have a difference of opinion there. When someone tells me they've seen something, usually I think they're being honest about what they think they saw. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they aren't mistaken about what they saw, um, but I do think they, they are usually earnest. So what, 
what do you believe then, as you've done this and you've looked at it, what do you believe they're seeing then? So I can't talk for everyone's experience, and the, the study isn't designed to um, definitively say what everyone has seen. Um, but the data do seem to suggest, at least in the research I've uh, conducted, that a great many sightings of supposed Sasquatch are actually black bears, Ursus Americanus. So I would think, though, Flo, I would... I mean, look, I've not ever claimed to see a Sasquatch. I've seen videos of it, but I would... A black bear and a Sasquatch are two very different things. How would those two be confused? Well, then I don't think they're quite as different as you think. Um, black bears do walk on their hind legs bipedally at times. There's a bear in America yeah. called Pedals who's famous for doing this. Um, and so you can imagine that, you know, a big, large, shaggy mammal with black fur that's you know, walking around bipedally from a distance, maybe in dark lighting or maybe through foliage in the woods. I, I could see how someone could mistake that for a Bigfoot. Okay. No, when you say it that way, that makes sense. And then it would also, if I'm following the thinking, you know, what, what ends up happening seems with most of the stories of people who say they've seen one, they don't, it sort of disappears. It vanishes. That would make sense then. If it was a bear on its hind legs that then went back into a typical bear stance and ran off, you would see nothing, but you may have seen something. Yeah, I think the same phenomena sort of appears in a lot of the videos that people produce. So, you know, there was for many decades um, kind of ambiguity as to whether we'd ever see a real um, Bigfoot video. Um, nowadays, everyone's carrying around a smartphone, right, which has a high-definition digital camera built in. And so you'd expect if there were very many Sasquatch out there, Bigfoot, that people would be recording these things kind of left, right, and center. And um, so a lot of the time, though, the videos that are presented even now are quite grainy, quite quite blurry, maybe taken from a distance, shaky, difficult to see what's going on. So it makes you think that maybe if they had got a better shot, they wouldn't have confused it for a Sasquatch. They would have said, oh, I've just filmed a bear. One of the, I mean, the name, the, the, the nickname for Sasquatch is Bigfoot. And we have seen at times people who say they're Sasquatch hunters have uh, um, plaster casts of a footprint could a black bear's footprint be mistaken for what some of these have shown? So I, I really can't speak on every cast that's been presented. Some have been demonstrated to be hoaxes. Um, I, I think bear footprints are probably more likely interpreted as kind of the Yeti-style footprint, right? But there, there are more hominid, human-looking footprints that have been presented. And I, I can't speak to the authenticity of those. Some some people have commented and suggested that maybe uh, there's a thing called the latex kerosene expansion method, where you make a, a latex cast of a human foot, and you add kerosene, and the latex expands and can preserve all of the details, like the sweat pores, the dermal ridges, the sole pads, um, while still kind of being really large in size. But again, you know, I, I can't speak to the authenticity of all of them. And, and even with my study, I wouldn't suggest that all supposed Sasquatch sightings are bears. I don't know. Perhaps there is a real Sasquatch out there. That's mm -hmm. kind of the beauty of it. But one of the other things that you've said, and I think this is really interesting, is that it seems that your study or some part of your study suggests that where there are often higher numbers of Sasquatch or when there are higher numbers of Sasquatch sightings, there tend to be, or there can be higher black bear populations in the area. 
That's exactly right. So the, the kind of study is the regression model. That's the kind of statistical model where we take two things and try and look for an association between the two. So I've taken um, Bigfoot sighting data across all the United States and all of the Canadian provinces, and I've put that into the model alongside the black bear populations in all of the U.S. states and provinces. And, I, and I've tried to see if that model can tell me if there's an association between the two. And I'm also accounting for other factors in the model as well. For example, more people. Uh, we'd expect there to be more sightings and also uh, a larger land area would expect there might be fewer sightings because if, if they're sparsely populated, you might have fewer interactions. Um, and the results of the model suggest that there is a statistically significant association between the two. Exactly as you said, we see that in places where there are more um, black bears, we tend to have more Bigfoot sightings. Okay, just before we go, um, Sasquatch is one of the things that whether it's an urban legend or whatever people want to believe but there are others there are things people have claimed to have seen the Loch Ness Monster for example if right do, do you believe then that probably the people who say they've seen these things whether we want to believe in them or not are probably seeing something uh, like across the board and we are going to believe them that they're seeing something we're just not sure what they've seen I think that's exactly right. So I actually do have another study on the Loch Ness Monster, funny that you mentioned it. Um, and I tried to, some people have suggested that maybe the Loch Ness Monster is explained by really large eels, because we know that Loch Ness does have a lot of eels. Um, and my study actually ruled out the giant eel hypothesis. So if there is something that people are seeing in Loch Ness, it isn't giant eels. It's uh, it's a fu- it's a fascinating and it's a fun topic because uh, we love talking about these things because we have no idea and and there's endless room to speculate on what this is but um, throwing a little science behind it uh, gives it a little more oomph to uh, to talk about. Full Fox and really appreciate you taking some minutes today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Ozzy Osbourne is uh, is not touring this summer. Not because he doesn't want to, but because Ozzy Osbourne is now 74 years old and Ozzy Osbourne had an accident a while back and did some damage to himself and says he's just physically not capable of doing it anymore. At least not right now. He's hoping that maybe something can be found to get him back touring again. Uh, The magical elixir of youth. I don't know what that might be. But he is not going to be on the road. And it got me wondering, you start to look down the list of the legendary rockers that are out there, the ones that wrote so much of the music that we have listened to over the years, but that are still doing it. Once upon a time, you would never have imagined that somebody in their 80s could be a rock star, but they are. But is this a a precursor or a reminder that we are getting to a point when an awful lot of these people that have been such huge influences in the world of music and are still trying to do it, that that those days are coming to an end. Alan Cross is the host of the Ongoing History of New Music. He is also the guy behind a Journal of Musical Things, which, by the way, if you need a website to go to to catch up on great stories about the music business, that is one of the ones to go to for sure. He joins me now. Alan, how are you today? Big news today on a couple of fronts. Tom Brady retires. Uh, we get the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominees for this year. And uh, Ozzy, who, you know, frankly, I thought he'd already, well, he has retired several times. But this time I think he means it. Uh, you know what? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, one of these, maybe tomorrow or the next day, we'll get into that one because uh, we'll see which crazy person they put up for it this time. Because they always try to find someone that is going to get everyone talking and mad. We'll see which one that is. But let's stick with this one for today because just before you came on, Alan, I started going through and it's 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 a completely not 
comprehensive list. I mean, I've just done the tip of the iceberg here. Dolly Parton, 75 now. Paul McCartney, 80. Ringo Starr, 81. Mick Jagger, 78 or 79. Bob Dylan, 80. Frankie Valley, 87. Willie Nelson, 89. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. We just lost Jerry Lee Lewis a little while ago. Tony Bennett is up in his 90s and is now ailing and not singing publicly anymore. There's an awful lot of the greats who have now reached the point that we would expect almost an announcement like the Ozzy Osbourne thing from them, isn't there? Well, there is. Let's let's start with Ozzy. Ozzy has not been well for 30 years. He first retired. <laughs> That's true. He, he first retired. Well, I, uh, the first time I saw Ozzy, I think, was in 1983. I guess it was the Blizzard of Oz tour. And, and he was he looked old and felt old and decrepit then. But then he somehow managed to carry through all the way through the 80s, all the way through the 90s. But there was a, a 30 years ago, so it was 1993 that he uh, did the No More Tears farewell tour, I think. And that was shortly after he had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So he's been dealing with that. There was another Black Sabbath reunion that was supposed to be a farewell tour. There was one in the late 90s, and there was one in the late 2000s. There was Ozzy's ATV accident where he hurt himself very, very badly. And uh, for a couple of days, we didn't know that he, he, he was going to survive. And that was around 2000. Two or 2003, that happened. Then we got his diagnosis with Parkinson's. Uh, and, and, you know, we're watching him on TV with, with the Osborne's reality show, and we just see him get older and sicker and older and sicker. So the fact that he was, he's been able to keep going at this age is, is, is pretty remarkable. What has him retiring now is uh, a, a spinal problem that he had from another accident that required surgery uh, about four years ago. So again, the, considering what Ozzy put himself through, yes, it, yes, it's amazing that he is still alive today. It, it, and that's, it really is. And I, I, Alan, that's why I was chuckling. Not about Parkinson's, obviously, or MS. It's th- this guy has certainly not taken it easy on his own body. I mean, it is kind of amazing he's still with us at seventy-four. It really is. Yeah, it, it is, and. I think we, as we've spoken before, we are quickly coming upon a time when we're going to see a mass extinction event with all yes. these people that you mentioned who are going to inevitably leave us. Uh, you know, Willie Nelson's getting ready to celebrate his 90th birthday in a, in a really big way. Uh, you know, you look at Bob Dylan, who's in his 80s. You, you know, both Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, I've, I've seen them recently, and and both of them look at, you know, fantastic health. But at some time in the next 10 years, we're going to have a world where there is no living beetle. And, and uh-huh. that's, that's absolutely terrifying to a, a lot of people, you know, baby boomers especially, because these are artists who have been with us for not just 30 years, but 40, 50, 60 years and more. And uh, our musical existence is going to have to continue without them. Well, and Alan, there's something else, though, too, and it's not just the music, although that is certainly a huge part of it. Our lives have a soundtrack, and when the people who provided that soundtrack begin dying, it is a very, very, very clear screaming in our ear about our own mortality and that we're getting older, too. Right. So this is music that we use to help us discover who we were as people, which is why it has such a a strong emotional component. It's also music that we use to project our identity 
to the world at large. So we use music in so many different psychological and emotional ways that when, you know, it's, it's not like we ever knew any of these people who made these iconic songs, but these songs helped us learn about ourselves. So when that person who gave us that insight into ourselves leaves this planet, it has a tremendous, it can have a tremendous emotional uh, traumatic, traumatic effect. Uh, I, I, I felt it when Bowie died. I felt it when Joey Ramone died. Uh, I could go on, but like, wait a second, these people were part of my life and now they're gone? How's that possible? Oh, wait, I see. Wait a second, what does that say about me? Exactly. No, exactly. And and yes, the music, um, certainly, although, I, you know, you look down the list, and, and again, just the one that I just quickly hammered together there, Dolly Parton, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan, Frankie Valley, Willie Nelson. I can't say that too many of them have been making much music lately, at least not that we are singing to, not that we're remembering. So it's not like the creative process is still at its peak, Um but as long as they're still singing, we are kind of feeling, I think, like things are okay because those people are still around who, as you've as you described, sort of reflected a part of our life. Yeah, they're still working. You know, there's a good chance that uh, they'll, they'll tour and they'll come to my town so I can see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if I can go see them while well, everything's all right, I'm still doing things. I'm still seeing people uh, as I did 30, 40 years ago. So it's fine. I'm not old, right? Uh-huh. Right? Well, you know, Paul McCartney came to Hamilton five years ago, something like that, and I got tickets and I was thrilled to go. I was so excited to go because I wanted to see him forever, and it was amazing. It was, though, you could tell a little bit. The voice is not exactly as it was. It was still great, but you you realize that, you know, at that moment that he was getting older and we are getting older but this is a whole new thing when you go from hearing a slight difference to that person not being there anymore or not being able to tour anymore no that that's true i mean it's it's your voice gets lower your voice can't reach the high notes so you transpose things down a few keys so you can still hit the notes in, in a reasonable way uh but when they're gone when you can't go see elton john ever again because he's he's you know, left this planet, or Paul McCartney, or any of these these stars. Uh, it's uh, we we are going to have a genuinely difficult time adapting. You know, not the younger generation because these artists don't mean as much to them as they do to to people who yes. grew up with them and have been you know with us their entire lives. Uh, it's 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 really going to be hard, especially since over the last oh, I guess quarter century. Uh, a lot of these acts have come back on the road and have allowed us to relive our youth by going exactly after alive. COVID. Yeah, and yeah, now no, it's yeah. No, no, Alan. We, I wish we had a lot more time because I love chatting with you about all these things. Uh, Alan Cross, the host of the ongoing history of new music, the man behind a journal of musical things. Go look it up. It is well worth your time, but not right now. After the show, uh, Alan. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. You bet. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. For much of the day today, there were reports flying around that John Herdman, the coach of Canada's national men's soccer team, the guy who led Canada to the World Cup, 
in Qatar just a few months ago that he had taken a job as the head coach of the New Zealand men's soccer team or football team, if you wish, and was going to be moving on. Well, just minutes ago, uh, John Herbman put out a statement saying, uh, I've received several offers in recent months, all of which I have turned down, including an offer from New Zealand football. And he goes on to say, no, I am sticking around and will be here as in coaching Canada when the World Cup arrives four years hence um, with some of the games in Canada, certainly in North America. I want to bring in John McGrain. He is a man who has played high-level professional soccer, Olympic soccer. He's been a coach. He's been a builder. He's done everything in this game. And John, when you heard that um, the stories that John Herdman was possibly, until we've got it clarified now, but when you heard that it was possible he would be leaving right before, as, as we're starting to get geared up for the next World Cup, was that a, uh, as a Canadian soccer fan, was that something that you were being panicked about or was that something that you were saying, ah, whatever? No, I think it had been, yeah, whatever. Yeah, uh, I think that... Uh, you know, I was not a big fan of the appointment to start with, uh, but I will cr- give credit where credit is due that uh, did a very good job of uh, getting Canada into first place in CONCACAF. Uh, but I do believe that the quality of the the play in CONCACAF, especially from teams like uh, Honduras and uh, El Salvador and, and Panama, was uh, very, very subpar. So... Uh, I think it was just a negotiating ploy on his part that he was throwing it out there that yeah, if you don't want me, there's other people. And and uh, I, I do believe that's what the, what the case was. What, is, what about the situation, regardless of whether we think he's a great coach, a mediocre coach, a bad coach, whatever it is that people may have in that spectrum, there is something about continuity, is there not? And and the fact that the, the team is far better now than it's ever been, and we do have the World Cup coming up, would it be an easy transition to find someone and bring someone in and be sure that our team did not regress? Because the one thing we don't want in four years or three years now when the World Cup is here, we don't want Canada's team to suddenly look worse than it did this time. I don't think that would be the case. I mean, you took a very inexperienced coach who had never coached at the men's level, uh, had never played the professional game or been involved in the professional men's game, and uh, came in and uh, did a reasonably good job. But I think for Herbman, uh, the stars did align for him when it came to the quality of players he was dealing with. Uh, I mean, there's half a dozen players right now who are playing top-class football in in the Champions League and the top uh, the top echelon of their particular countries, uh, that has never happened before. Uh, and they're all young kids, and they're doing terrific jobs. Uh, I think my my biggest concern is experience with Herdman. Uh, what happened at the World Cup, his behavior at the World Cup, and his naivete at the World Cup, I think cost Canada and. Uh, I hope he's learned from it, but uh, but there's a lot of good coaches out there who could take this great young group of Canadian boys and take them to another level. Whether Herdman can do that or not, it's it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see. 
Well, there certainly are going to be eyeballs. I mean, I'm guessing that now we knew John Herdman from the women's team, but let's leave out the women's team for a second. I would guess that five years ago, if you had just been the guy who was the coach of Canada's men's national team, considering where our success level had been over the years, if there had been rumors you were leaving, most people across this country would have not even looked at their Twitter feed to see what that was about. At the very least, the way the team has gone and with the performance under him, everybody knows who John Herdman is and has an opinion one way or another. That's a good thing. Well, that's got a lot to do with John Herdman. I mean, John Herdman is probably one of the best PR people around. Uh, he's he's personable. He's a good speaker. Uh, he uh, has ability to put himself about. Uh, I mean, he's, he's not one of these... Uh, coaches that goes into the room and shuts the door and, and, and does tactics all day. Uh, he's out, he's, 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 uh, he flies his own flag. There's no doubt about that. So he's made himself known at the same time. Uh, he's done a tremendous job with the women's program. Uh, you know, 10 out of 10 for that. He's done a great job with respect to the men's program, uh, in qualifying. Uh, but, What's going to happen is a lot of these young players who are playing for Herbin right now recognize his strengths and his weaknesses. They're now going back to their own professional teams, being coached by some of the best coaches in the world. And then two or three years from now, when they're 24, 25, 26, and they come back, and they come back to the rah-rah-rah type of situation that we had with Canada, uh, I'm not quite sure that's going to work anymore. I I, I don't know. Yeah. I, well, I've wondered about that. Years. I've wondered, John, we got to run. I've wondered about that. We, we know, and I think we've seen what John Herdman's real strength is. He's a motivator, and I don't think there's any doubt about that, and he gets people to play hard. They played hard for him, but yeah. you're right. He, he was criticized for tactics. Maybe... Canada needs, I, I don't know if he would allow this to happen, but to bring in someone who's better on the tactical side, let him do what he does so well and have someone else do that other part as well so you don't lose either one of those. Well, I think you've pretty well hit the nail on the head when it comes to tactics. Uh, we had the best left fullback, I think, in the world in Alfonso Davies, and he put him up front. I mean, come on. Uh you know, let let let's play to our strengths, and uh, I do think that uh, at some point they're going to have to bring somebody in to help. But he's a very confident individual, and I don't think he would put up with that. Uh, you know, he has a great uh, feeling about how good he is, and um, I think he would resist anybody coming in to give him any help. But we'll wait and see. Uh, you know, I I, I don't. Uh, I see good things coming forward from the Canadian national team as far as the players is concerned. I just hope the, that the coaching staff can grow with the players. That is John McGrain. Always love having you on, John. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. My pleasure, Scott. If you have been paying attention at all to the news over the last couple of years here in the city, you know that one of the topics that has been front and center often is encampments. There have been tents that have been set up by homeless people, homeless people and others, and then taken down by the city and up and down and up and down. Well, there was a decision in Waterloo on Friday that some people are saying has the potential to set a huge precedent with this. And in the case in Waterloo, the municipality, the city's request to remove a homeless encampment was denied 
on the basis that there was not adequate indoor space. So if you were to take down their tents, there's no place for the people to go. That therefore violates the residents' charter rights. Could that be the kind of precedent that you think it would think it might be? Could that affect us here in Hamilton and how our city council and our city handles these things? Uh, Martha Jackman is a professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. She joins me now. Professor, thank you for this today. Um, pleased to be here. I mean, when I talk about precedent, uh, it's a nice word that we throw around all the time because I think most of us think any kind of court case that has a decision is going to be a precedent. Is it that simple? When when you hear what happens in Waterloo, is it that simple that that same thing will be applied in Hamilton here and other places? Well, that is a great question, and the court that the case is novel in Ontario. It's the first time an Ontario court has has um, rendered a decision on this issue of the charter rights of residents of encampments. But uh, the courts in BC have been wrestling with this for a while. Back in 2008, the um, trial court and then the Court of Appeal decided a case, and they've, they've in Victoria, there's been one in Abbotsford and other parts of the province. And in fact, those cases, you could say, created a precedent for the case here uh, in Ontario in the same way that this Ontario case may well create a precedent for other cases in other parts of the province or even other provinces. I don't know if we know the answer to this yet, but does this mean when they say that there must be adequate indoor space or else you can't get rid of these tents because people have to have somewhere to go, do we know if it means there has to be adequate indoor space to take everyone or, and the reason I say it this way is because there are some who will be out on the street who are using substances or are, are drunk or intoxicated. And there are some shelters that say you can't come into our shelter if you're high or if you're intoxicated. So do we have to have spaces for everyone regardless, or is it enough to say we have enough space, but you by your actions disqualified yourself, but that's enough to cover us as far as the case goes. Well, that's what makes this case uh, important. The, the right that the encampment residents are relying on is Section 7 of the Charter, which guarantees the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and states that you can't be deprived of those rights in a way that's fundamentally unjust. And what Justice Valente decided in this case is that when the municipality uh, threatened to evict the the residents of the encampment or to take down the encampment, that violated the Section 7 rights of the residents because there wasn't shelter space available that was actually accessible to them in the condition that they are. So that the fact that there may well be residents spaces, even vacant ones, across the municipality, but for example, they have an ab- abstinence rule, and almost all of the claimants in this case uh, use substances. So, uh, uh, a shelter that says you can't come in if you are a substance user, if you're using substances, is really no shelter at all. And that was thing that, on the evidence, the judge recognized and. And he basically stated, no, if if the shelter space that's being made available is not truly accessible to the people who need it, then that is not a justification for dismantling the encampment.
And, and I know, look, I know you're not a housing expert, you're a legal expert, but that, that seems like a really tricky thing then for a municipality to have to find is to be able to create a space that says, regardless of what state you're in, you have to have some place to go. That, I mean, I'm listening to that and thinking, frankly, that could be dangerous, couldn't it? Well, and again, it's, it's a great question, and I think we all understand that municipalities are in a different, you know, difficult position in this case because they are not being adequately funded by the provincial or federal government to deal with the housing crisis generally, um, let alone this aspect of it, which is the homelessness crisis. Um, and so the idea that they alone should have to figure this out, you know, get, definitely gives us pause. And what's interesting about this case is that there was an earlier challenge where the claimants argued that Ontario and the federal government's failure to even develop a strategy for beginning to address the problem of homelessness in Ontario and Canada was itself a charter violation. The courts weren't sympathetic to that claim and it was struck down. But in a way, what we're seeing here is a symptom of the problem that really can't be resolved unless other levels of government get involved and there's a really a whole a, a global approach that is taken to it what about liability um uh, this is not going to happen overnight even if every municipality read this ruling and said okay we've got to fix this it's going to take a little bit of time to figure out how to do this in the meantime we in hamilton here we had an encampment a year or two ago uh, a fire broke out in a tent um, let, let's say that happened and someone was killed or that someone walking through a park who's not a, a person living in the encampment stepped on a syringe or whatever. Would the city be liable for any bad things that would happen in these encampments because now they don't have the shelter space to grant the people to get them out of the encampments? And I'm sorry, you're I'm not the person to be answering that question. It, it, it sort of the issue of civil and criminal liability of municipalities is well beyond um, my um, my area of expertise. What I would say, though, is that, you know, those are the types of arguments that municipalities are, are putting forward to explain why they are dismantling encampments. And again, what the Charter permits is, on the one hand, you know, the court is weighing the Charter rights of residents, so the life, liberty, and security of the person rights of residents, but on the other hand, the standard that municipalities are being held to is one of, of essentially fundamental justice. So mm. these are the kinds of issues that the courts will be weighing. But the bottom line is that this, you know, we're talking about really a human rights violation here. And the concerns around cost and liability, you know, are things that really need to be resolved without it adversely affecting the rights of, of the people who are involved. Professor, I'm over time already, but I got to ask you this, just they're going to kill me back at the office. But let's say I have a, what are the rights of the people who are not in the encampments? For example, if I own a home and I want to put my home up for sale, but there is someone who has set up a tent and there's garbage everywhere on a boulevard in front of my house, not on my property, but on public land right in front, that would seemingly affect my rights as well to be able to live the way I want. How do you balance the two different rights? Well, that's what Section 1 of our Charter allows the government to do, is to limit rights where it's 
demonstrably justifiable. In Canada, property rights are not constitutionally protected. So you can't say, you know, your right to life, yes, but my right to property, uh, no. In this case, you know, we are talking about people's mental and physical health and well-being. And absolutely, I think any of us who lives in an urban centre is going to be sympathetic to the competing concerns of, of, you know, residents and businesses. But again, that really underscores the importance of, of dealing with this problem, not case by case, municipality by municipality, park by park, but with some really concerted provincial, federal and municipal cooperation to ensure that people have the services and the housing they need. You know, it's cold in Canada. We're in the winter. Like, who wants people to be forced to live in parks? I don't think anyone does. It's uh, it is it is such a tricky issue right now, and this has probably added some of the trickiness to it. Now, Professor Martha Jackman, Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa, thank you for this. You're more than welcome. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. If you've been outside in the last little while, you'll know it's cold out there, and it is going to get colder at night as that's the way it works but it also means that for those who are out living on the street it is uh this is a rough time of year these are rough nights when things are this bad and we have heard we were just talking about it with encampments but we've heard here in hamilton for a while now not enough places for people to go when this kind of weather comes along uh, and not enough places for people to go and get warm and get out of the elements. Uh, Jennifer Bonner is the executive director of The Hub in Hamilton. It's on Vine Street, uh, down by First Ontario Centre. Jennifer joins us now. Jennifer, how are you today? Exhausted, but I'm here. It's all good. <laughs> Exhausted. I, I'm guessing that these, as I say, these these days and these stretches are, are a bit of a, a well, a, a drag on the staff. And I don't mean a drag like a bad thing, just a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work, um, but it is nothing compared to uh, what the people we serve have to go through. So uh, we're going to suck it up and, uh, you know, be grateful for what we do have. I want to ask you what we were just talking uh, before you came on with a professor, a law professor, about the ruling in Waterloo regarding encampments. And some of it sort of trickles over and ties over to, to you. Do you have rules at the hub about who can come in? Yeah, so we're pretty low barrier. Uh, currently, our restriction policy has never been more than uh, 72 hours, uh, and those would have to be pretty extreme cases. Uh, for the most part, what happens is if uh, if someone just isn't in the headspace or isn't in the right frame of mind to be in, uh, in close quarters with others, uh, they may be asked to leave the space for the night, but they can always come back and talk to a manager uh, the next day. Um, and uh, 90% of the time they're able to make access uh, to the services the following evening. Are there any rules about intoxication? No. Okay. And that, that I think, is that unusual that you don't have it? Because it seems to me that a number of shelters, whether exactly like yours or others, do have rules that say you're not permitted to be intoxicated when you come in. Well, I think at the end of the day, uh, a good percentage of folks who are staying in shelter um, have mental health and substance use concerns. Um, and so it, it, a lot of them are going in that way. It's a matter of behaviors more than anything else um, for them to, you know, blatantly say that. And I think too, that the restrictions are subjective right now at shelters, right? Um, a lot of people, uh, you know, maybe I'm having a bad day or maybe I'm just not interested in dealing with it today. Um, and that's not actually fair to our clients. So we need to look at restrictions in a different way and we need to check our own biases at the door. 
I get it. We're all taxed. Uh, we're all exhausted. Uh, it's been a long three years uh, with COVID and other things. Um, and sometimes maybe uh, we don't have the grace that we should uh, for someone who has a uh, medical disorder. What what kind of numbers on a night like tonight, if it's supposed to be really cold, if it gets to be where it's supposed to be, what kind of numbers are we talking that you would expect you might see? Well, in our regular five to nine program, we see about 120 to 140 people nightly. That's in a four hour window and that's our regular drop in. Um, on the overnight hours, uh, you know, we have seen at the beginning of this, we started out with 60 to 75 people. Uh, the last four days, we've seen over 100 uh, folks enter our space. Uh, and, and again, you know, we have a 25 cap. So we're asking people to cycle out occasionally um, just to free up some space so somebody else has a chance to get warm. And people have been really respectful of that. I think everyone uh, who lives out there knows that. Uh, you know, there's some struggles right now for everyone, and they and they uh, also care about their neighbors. And when you talk about those numbers, are those generally the same group of people, or are you talking about you know every day it's a different number of people? In other words, is in the downtown area right where you are, is that the sort of the number of people that have the need, or is that a constantly cycling number of different folks? Yeah, we've seen a lot of new faces lately. We've seen a lot of out of towners, specifically Brantford. Uh, folks coming in from Brantford. Really? So I'm not sure if, you know, Brantford folks uh, services are taxed out as well. But I mean, shelters are full. And depending on the rotations at shelters, depending who's made bed check, whatever, I would say that there's a good core group. Absolutely. But we see new faces every single night. Um, and that 110 number is probably 95 unique individuals. Um, the 110 is because, you know, some of them have been asked to leave for a bit to let others in and then they come back at night, right? Um, but 95 unique individuals, of which it's probably a four to one ratio for men to women. It's um, and, and I would have to assume, and this may be even a dumb question, but I mean, there are times when outdoors it is scorching hot in the summer, which can almost be dangerous with the heat. This is way worse when it's this cold, right? Yeah, it's way worse when it's this cold. Um, yeah. I think, you know, uh, when it's really, really hot, uh, you know, there's always somewhere we can find some water. Uh, when it's really, really cold, we can't really go anywhere to get warm. Um, you know, we have people who are burning hand sanitizer, which has a whole nother like health effect to it. Uh, we've seen people with serious burns because we've maybe fallen asleep, uh, by a fire that we probably weren't supposed to have. Uh, we have folks that are hiding out in, in you know, in abandoned buildings, which has an inherent risk. Uh, so, um, it is definitely more risky in the cold weather. Um, and actually there's no cold weather alert tonight. So. It's just just cold. Maybe not officially cold, but it is cold. Uh, Jennifer exactly. Bonner, Executive Director of The Hub. Uh, if you're driving down by First Ontario Centre, uh, it is on Vine Street. It's one street that runs parallel um, there. You can, uh, you can find it there. Uh, Jennifer, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate you. Have a great night. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Bruce called in, and Bruce has something he wants to get off his chest. I don't even know what Bruce is going to say, but you know what? I believe that Bruce has got something that's worth hearing. Bruce, what's up? Well, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I would just, I am a farmer and, and here's some, uh, one number that's just an, an estimate, um, well, sort of a, an, an, a half educated guess, I guess. If you think of uh, $100 worth of tillage for an acre of ground, that would include like disking, cultivating, plowing, 
combining, um, whatever, you know, it takes to, to, to get your product through, um, about sort of 10 to $15 of that would have been fuel cost at a dollar a liter sort of a year and a half ago when we were down like that. Now, diesel is what it is, sort of maybe 235 or whatever. I'm not sure what the latest bulk price will be. Um, so then all of a sudden that 10 to $15 becomes sort of 20 to $30. So that's just one step or one part of the process. Towards why things are costing so much? At the grocery store, right. Yeah. So well. there's a cost that farmers incur. That's just one of the costs. Then, of course, labor costs and all that sort of thing is, is going up as well. So then, then whatever you're growing on uh, uh, for, for produce, um, that has to then go and be processed further and, and get moved around and so on. And so everybody's energy costs along the way uh, have, have, well, kind of doubled in the last year. Yeah, nope. there's a, there's a lot of people, Bruce, and we got to run. There's a lot of people who really believe that the grocery stores are gouging us, and I can certainly understand that. But you know, your point is well taken. Maybe even if there is gouging, maybe it's not quite as much because the costs are going up that uh, that is being affected. Bruce, thank you for calling. I appreciate you talking about that. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. For a long time at Hamilton Bulldogs games, this song was kind of celebratory. Now it's kind of a loaded question. Who let the dogs out? Because they're going to Brantford. For the next three years, the Hamilton Bulldogs will be the Brantford Bulldogs. And they will be playing up the road. And there are a lot of people who are already expressing some concerns that they may not see this team come back here. Well, the one person who might be able to answer this question and offer some clarity, if there is clarity to be offered, is the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, Michael Andlauer, who joins us now. Michael, thanks for this today. Hey, good evening, Scott. <laughs> so yesterday and the day before when I chatted with you, because uh, you've learned in November that the team was going to be out of First Ontario Centre for at least a couple of years because of renovations, and you've uh, signed a deal and it'll be probably, uh, we expect, okayed by the Brantford Council, meaning you'll be playing there for three years. Um, it, are the Is the team going to be coming back? Is this a scenario in which you have that you wonder do you know yet it's a lot of questions but should we expect that this is the end of the hamilton bulldogs uh i don't think so i mean i i certainly didn't intend to be leaving hamilton uh, and you know from everything i've heard initially which i i heard for the first time in november is that we would be out of the building as was the toronto rock and uh, the Hamilton Badgers. Um, um, and it was on the premise that we would be out, there would be some renovations that would start in the fall uh, and it would last, uh, you know, would be out for two seasons. Um, and then um, that was about it, really. Uh, so that was that was the, the expectation. And uh, I've had... Uh, since November, I've had a uh, couple of meetings with QPEG, the company that was uh, contracted by the city to renovate and manage uh, the three facilities. And my last conversation with them would have been a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
and they were suggesting that uh, it was going to take uh, X amount of months in architectural drawings and 24 months of construction, which kind of led me to believe that, oh, uh, I could be in a situation where I, uh, the arena would be available and, and I would uh, be uh, out of a place. So that was, that's the only thing I, ha- I know at this no- time. Uh, I was told that they would like to have me back, but there was, there's nothing concrete. There's nothing in writing. There's nothing, uh, there's no lease, uh, but, but not, nothing of the sort. Uh, I haven't seen any designs or, or anything that would uh, indicate that there's uh, you know, something concrete, just uh, 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 a desire to have have us back. Um, so that's, that's yeah, I mean, all Michael, I can you've really been, tell you on that. Michael, you've been blunt, though, that you've been upset by this process. You've been frustrated. Those are both words you've used. Do you think that you've been treated fairly? I don't know if that's the right word, but treated properly by the leadership in this city over the years? I, you know, I, I, that's, that's my only opinion that uh, uh, I'll let, you know, uh, it's not, I, I'm disappointed. It truly is. I mean, I, I know, I know what I, you know, I know what I, I know why I do what I do. Uh, and it's to create a positive environment uh, for a city that I love, uh, that I fall in love with. Uh, I've always said that, uh, I love being the underdog. Uh, I like, I like, I just love the city. I love its fans. Um, I wish we could do more and, and, uh, in many respects. And I've tried to, but, uh, it, it's, it's one of those things where I don't know if, if, if they know their right hand from their left hand. Uh, that's, that's perception I get. So, um, it's disappointing. And frankly, uh, you know, uh, I just, you know, I don't know. I just, I'm not asking for for some love. I just, uh, I just want some respect. And I just think that, that there's been a lot of a lack of respect through this whole, not only this process, but previous previous uh, uh, initiatives that we've tried to make a, a, a more positive impact to the community. One of the reasons why, well, two of the reasons why a number of people online and talking have wondered about the future of the Hamilton part of the Bulldogs is a the fact that you're going to be putting millions of dollars into the Brantford arena, which seems like an investment that would be more than three years. And two, the fact that you're rebranding them as the Brantford Bulldogs while they're there. Uh, Let's go to the second one first. Why change the name to the Brantford Bulldogs? Well, if you think about the, you know, it's not about what I'm putting into the the arena. The city is also putting an investment into the arena as well. Um, they've, they've been incredibly accommodating, uh, through this process. There's definitely a timing issue that I have to be, you know, uh, cognizant for our players, our hockey team. Uh, and, uh, and they've come to the plate. Uh, and, you know, uh, so that's the least amount of respect I could do is, 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 uh, uh, is, is be the Brampton. Uh, the Bradford, sorry, the Bradford, my apologies, uh, the Bradford Bulldogs. Yeah, that, uh, no, um, you know. So, so I mean, I, I, you know, it's interestingly enough when the Toronto Rock came to um, 
the Ontario Center, uh, I heard all the uh, the criticism with respect to uh, to the fact that they were called the Toronto Rock. You know, here we are, we accommodated them in Hamilton. Why are why are they called the Toronto Rock? So uh, <laughs> you're doing if you do, are you doing if you don't? Uh, so I, I think at the end of the day. Uh, it was, it's the right thing. Um, uh, you know, Hamilton, I mean, a lot of people from Brantford, a lot of people from Burlington come in and, and support the Hamilton Bulldogs, uh, in Hamilton. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, so for me, it's just, it's a name. I think it's, you know, we're playing in Brantford, uh, and we should, we should, uh, you know, I don't, you know, we're we're still going to have the same logo. We're still going to be black and gold, which is kind of synonymous uh, with the hammers. One more thing before we go, because we're short on time. One of the things that often doesn't often get talked about with the teams. It's often just talk about a hockey team. Your foundation this year has put about a million dollars into breakfast programs and other things around Hamilton. While you're in Brantford, is that money still coming to Hamilton? Will it be going to Brantford? What, what, what happens to the, all that that charity money that the team through the foundation raises? Yeah, and that so I, I don't want to confuse politics or, or you know, uh, city decisions to what what you're doing in the community. And I think what we're doing is helping enrich the lives of, of the youth in the greater Hamilton area. Uh, obviously, our our signature project is a dogs breakfast program and. Uh, the last thing I'll do is, is, uh, you know, is leave these, uh, uh, young students, uh, in a position where they can't benefit from the dog's breakfast program. Um, but obviously we will stretch to Bradford. And interestingly enough, I think a lot of, a lot of the proceeds, uh, that we get that we're redistributed are, are from our 50 50 draws and the tie cats, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, tie cats are reaching some of the programs that the money does go to, uh, go to other areas, uh, including the Brantford football, uh, program, for example. So, uh, it, it's, it, it won't, we will not, uh, you know, uh, cut back on that. And, and obviously we're, we're going to be cognizant of, of, uh, of Brantford, um, going forward as well. That is Michael Andlauer, owner of the Hamilton, soon-to-be Brantford Bulldogs for three years at least, anyway. Uh, Michael, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. Pensions, your pension, my pension, our pensions. If you have one, well, if you don't have one, uh, you know, I understand because a lot of people don't now. But if you do, uh, this is something that is obviously probably going to be rather important to you. And if you're using your pension now, it's really important to you. If you're looking down the road a few years, you're probably pretty on top of what's going on, so you know what's going to happen. Well, Canada's Canadian defined pension plans collectively suffered their largest losses since the 2008 financial crisis in 2022, a double-digit drop in asset value despite a little bit of a recovery at the end of the year. Uh, Michael Veal is a professor of economics at McMaster University. He's the academic director of Statistics Canada Research Data Center. Joins us now. Michael, thank you for this. Good to be here. So let's walk through this a little bit, because I think people who are on their pension know all about their pension. But there are some people who may not be to a pension yet. And so they kind of have a good idea, but not really. They're not as on top of this. How concerning... Would it be if I'm someone who is waiting to get to a pension when I hear that the assets 
declined by over 10% last year? Not concerned at all, really. Uh, defined benefit plans, the, uh, the pension plan is going to pay the money out uh, in terms of guaranteed payments. And this particular announcement doesn't make it any less likely that they will be able to beat those targets. Um, it is a bit scary. I can understand that. But uh, pension plans uh, make their payments essentially by buying interest-bearing securities uh, and using those securities to make out the, the pension plan payments. And so uh, interest rates have gone up. And that's what caused the decline in the, in the stock market values and some other asset values that is reflected in the value of their assets. Uh, but because those interest rates have gone up, it makes it easier for the pension plan to actually make those payments. And so what's happened is the value of the assets has gone down, but from the pension plan's perspective, so has the value of their liabilities gone down. And more or less, it's a wash or even perhaps a little better for the pension plan. So, so this is not a scary announcement, not this particular one. Okay, because every time someone says guaranteed, you're guaranteed to get paid. I always think, well, yeah, they also said the Titanic could never sink. So, you know, that always comes to mind. But th there is – so people who have defined pensions, there is no chance that if the market goes kaput or we have a market drop or whatever else, there's no chance that you should be worried about your pension? No, that's not that's not true. I'm just saying there's nothing in this announcement that makes okay. it any worse. Okay. Right? There's always a bit of a risk. Um People in Hamilton know about that, right? There have been companies get in trouble there and have. not make their pension plan, plan payments. But this particular announcement doesn't doesn't make us worried about this. Uh, these are defined uh, benefit pension plans, uh, still solvent, and in fact, more solvent this year than they were at this time last year. One of the things I think, and someone might correct me and say that I'm way off on this one, I think most people who have RRSPs or play in the stock market or whatever, they keep track of how their own investments are doing. Does anybody keep track of how their pension plans investments are doing, or do they just assume they're going to be there and be ready? Well, I suppose some people do. There are regulatory authorities that uh, are supposed to uh, keep track of this. Uh, I think it's a really difficult process when you start to talk about uh, private pension plans. But, I mean, I think you're right in terms of the guarantee there are possible slips. It is simply the fact, however, that the fact that the stock market going down this year actually doesn't jeopardize those plans uh, in itself. Uh, because the reason the stock market went down was because interest rates went up. And interest rates go up is a compensating advantage uh, for defined pension plans. Now, if you have your own RSP or your own investments, then you saw them go down. Uh, you don't get the compensating advantage. Uh, so it's different for people who are have either relying on their own RSPs or what are called defined contribution plans, which are sort of like RSPs uh, run through a pension plan framework, uh, defined contribution plan are. Uh, that's where uh, you put some money in and it's invested and then you get whatever you get. But for uh, defined benefit pension plans, those are the kind that say you're going to get so many dollars per month. Um, th those are just as safe now as they were a month ago as they were a year ago. You obviously very correctly pointed out that there have been cases where things have gone wrong with pensions. And we've had some around here. We've had some very high profile ones around here. How often does that happen? Um, less is I think the regulation has gotten better uh, and also often uh, defined benefit pension plans are in a union context and I think unions have become more aware of this and, and have uh, tried to stay more on top of things and, and try to make sure that the pension plan is managed uh, properly. Uh, 
But yeah, I, I think it's it has been a danger in the past. Uh, we shouldn't be less vigilant, um, but we also shouldn't worry about bumps in the stock market uh, because the plans are designed to take those into account. Yeah, because I, I would think that, and again, using the example around here, for a while there, I think probably most people in Hamilton who had a pension when things were going a little sour were a little nervous. And I don't know that they all had reason to be, but when you have one high-profile case of some people without a pension, boy, I, I, I can understand why people would be nervous. Oh, yeah, it's an awful situation. I, I you, you have to feel great sympathy for the people who got caught in that in that problem. Uh because company, you know, particular companies not doing well, uh, and that's still possible, right? But again, uh, that will be because a particular company doesn't do well and has not managed its pension plan well. In terms of the overall moves of the stock market and the bond market, uh, those themselves are things that the pension plans do take into account and have taken into account, and as I say, uh, are not worse off now than they were. A year ago. It is, uh, you know what, you are the voice of reassurance, for <laughs> which, is, which is great, because often when we talk about economic stuff, uh, there's always the, oh, yes, but. Um, Michael Veal, professor of economics at McMaster University, the academic director of Statistics Canada Research Data Center. It is great to have someone on who can be the voice of reassurance. Michael, thank you for doing this today. Very glad to be here. Thanks. Uh, look, as I understand, uh, for people listening, if you are someone who is already at the point, and again, assuming you, you have a pension, and that's not a fair assumption for everybody. I understand that not everyone has a pension. Even people have worked. Some some jobs didn't have pensions. I get that. But if you're someone who's already drawing from your pension, um, I, I would assume that any kind of story about losses in pension plan revenue, as this story was that we talked about, is going to cause a few eyeballs to open, you know, eyes to open and ears to perk up and say, oh, what does that mean? Which is partially why we wanted to do this today. But especially, and I'm in this latter category, and I'm going to, you know, be very upfront. I'm in the latter category. I'm not near a pension yet, but I'm near enough years down the road that I have just now in the last little while kind of begun to pay attention. You're working away and your money is going into it over the years, but never, never really spent any time on it. It's just recently that you start to look and then again, you hear, oh, pension investments didn't do well. What does this mean? Well, if Michael's right, and I'm assuming he is, and I believe he would be, Exhale. It's okay. Even if you read that the decline in assets of over 10% happened with pension, defined pension investments, it's okay. Apparently. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. So what did we learn today? What did we learn here today on Hamilton Today? Well, what did we learn? We learned that Michael Anlauer is uh, probably not really happy <laughs> With Hamilton, we learned that. I think that's fair to say. With some of the, uh, at least, is a little dis- discouraged or disappointed. Maybe that's a better one. Uh, we learned that Bigfoot and people who spot Bigfoot, they might actually be seeing black bears. That that apparently, according to a study, we learned that. That's um, that's helpful. So if you see a, a Sasquatch, if you see a Bigfoot, it might be a black bear. Uh, we learned that. 
many of our favorite rock stars are getting to the point where there's going to be, in the words of Alan Cross, a mass extinction, which sounds a mass extinction event, which sounds a little bit like something really horrible. It just means they're all getting very old and will not be singing forever. Uh, we learned that John Herdman is not going to New Zealand to coach their men's soccer team. He is staying in Canada. What else did we learn? We learned about encampments and the rules here in the city. We learned about warming centers. Uh, and we learned that if you've got a pension, you should probably be okay. And I'll tell you one more thing you're going to learn before we're done. And this, I, I absolutely love this story. It is from, it is from uh, Michigan, uh, a six-year-old boy. See, this is why you don't leave your cell phone on and logged in where a six-year-old can get his hands on it and thinks that maybe he's playing a video game. A six-year-old Michigan boy got his dad's cell phone, and there's something called Grubhub, which is, you know, like Uber Eats or something, like they bring food to your door. Um, I guess nobody told the kid that every time you order something, it's real food and real money. <laughs> so so they're sitting, they're sitting at home in uh, Chesterfield Township, just outside Detroit, and... Um, well, the food started arriving. <laughs> the food started arriving. Um, five large orders of jumbo shrimp, some salads, all from different places. Salads, a shawarma, chicken pita sandwiches, chili cheese, chili cheese fries, ice cream, grape leaves, rice, uh, and that was only the first hour. <laughs> Oh, I love this. This poor kid. Well, not poor kid. It's poor dad or poor mom. Yeah. Uh, just playing on the Grubhub account. And uh, yeah, in the first hour, they, they say, well, they just kept coming. <laughs> it was like the kid was on a game show. And anyway, he rang, the kid rang up over a thousand dollars on food. Well, look, their fridge, I'm sure, is well stocked. So they have all the food they could possibly eat for the next. I mean, their, their groceries are done. And it is quite a, it is quite a combination of foodstuffs to, to be able to put together. I mean, jumbo shrimp with some grape leaves. Anyone not like grape leaves? Those Middle Eastern, oh, amazing. Some chili cheese fries with ice cream. That why would you not do that? J salad and shawarma. I mean, you've got you've got a, some lovely meals here, nonetheless. Um, uh, yeah, and th this whole thing, this whole thing was uh, was ordered in the span of less than half an hour. Half an hour by this six year old who apparently, and I'll believe him because he's six. Apparently, thought he was playing a video game. <laughs> The only difference is the video game had real people showing up the door to give him his rewards. Um, $183 in jumbo shrimp. That was a good one. $439 from Happy's Pizza. <laughs> and uh, yeah, other thing. Um, and it seems as though the parents finally are looking out the window and it's like a scene at the end of Field of Dreams, you know, the one where all the cars with their lights on are driving up to the to the stadium. Uh, they're looking out the window. There's just a line of cars of like Uber Eats car coming up to drop stuff off. This is a great story. I love this story. Never give your six-year-old your cell phone with the Visa or MasterCard number attached and it open. 
or else this happens to you and we end up talking about you here. That is, uh, I love that one. That is a great story. Uh, congratulations to Maurice Labrec, who was our winner today. Uh, he was the first caller in. He has won a pair of tickets to go see Because the because Beer Craft Beer Festival on Saturday, February 18, from 2 to 6 at Bridgeworks. I hope Maurice likes beer because there will be beer there. I'm assuming if he called in to win, he does. So uh, way to go. Way to go, Maurice. Good job. Way to be quick on the fingers and on the dialing. Uh, folks, tomorrow, Scott Thompson will be back here in the seat. I will be back at my regular time at 6 o'clock. Scott will be here from 3 o'clock until 6 o'clock. Uh, thank you to Will, Will number one, Will Erskine, for getting everything lined up today, doing all the work to uh, get our guests. Thank you to Will Weber. We only hire people named Bill, Will, and Scott, apparently, on this. We've got multiples of everything. Poor Rick Zamperin is all by himself with a with a name that, you know, is by himself. Uh, thank you to Will Erskine. Thank you to Will Weber, who is on the board for keeping us going. Thank you to all of our amazing guests. They were fantastic today. And to you especially for listening. Uh, we do appreciate you taking time. We know you could be listening to or doing all kinds of other stuff. We love that you joined us. Have yourself a great night. We'll talk to you soon. And boom goes the dynamite. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.